Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers and on today's episode, we're looking at Australia's groundbreaking agreement to offer climate refuge to Tuvalu. So the PM recently announced that nearly 300 Tuvaluans will be granted visas every year, deeming them climate refugees. They'll get to live and work and study in Australia. And this marks the first time Australia's offered residency to people specifically affected by the climate crisis. But as you'll hear, it comes with an important caveat. Tuvalu has to agree not to enter defence pacts with other nations, such as, for example, China, without Australia's approval. Countries like Australia really have an obligation to support smaller countries and countries at the front line of climate change, irrespective of the benefits they get in return. So what's the backstory to this and what could it mean for other nations grappling with climate change? That's our briefing topic in the second half of this episode. First, here are today's headlines with Sasha Barbagat. It is Monday, the 4th of December. The UN Humanitarian Agency has reported around 1.8 million people are internally displaced in Gaza. That's about 75% of Gaza's population. And that number has risen since the ceasefire ended last week. Gaza's health ministry has reported overnight that over the nearly two-month war, around 15,000 people, of those nearly 70% are women and children, have been killed in Gaza. The renewed fighting has heightened concerns for 136 Israeli hostages who, according to the IDF, are still being held by Hamas and other militants in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, that's still a really big number. And the Associated Press is reporting the Pentagon has claimed a US warship and multiple commercial vessels have come under attack in the Red Sea. They didn't identify where the fire came from, but Yemen's rebels have been attacking vessels in the Red Sea, targeting Israel as it wages war against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And these rebels have claimed responsibility for attacking two ships in the Red Sea, just not specifying what ships they were. So that's going to continue to unfold. But also on the ground in Gaza, you know, Palestinians are fearful right now of an imminent ground invasion of southern Gaza. Israel's military has ordered more areas in the south to evacuate as it ramps up its bombardments. I think there was this feeling during the truce that, you know, we might be starting to see things settle down a little bit, but it really does look like this is just going to keep going. In an Australian first, the Assistant Health Minister has launched the National Health and Climate Strategy, which aims to minimise the health impacts of climate change. All this was announced at the COP28 summit in Dubai overnight. Jekani says this includes plans to decarbonise our health system. To do this, we will publish baseline emissions estimates for the health system, including aged care, with updates to track progress in reducing emissions. We will also develop a decarbonisation roadmap. Mm, it's really interesting, this one. Uh, worth mentioning, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, he loves to make a statement. Now, among the luxury super yachts in the Dubai harbour was a 75-metre ship powered by green ammonia owned by iron ore billionaire Andrew Twiggy Forrest. Now, the vessel is actually not allowed in the harbour because ships powered by ammonia aren't permitted to berth in any port under maritime law. But, of course, I didn't stop Twiggy from rolling in with it, saying he'd rather the ship be blocked and make it a 
demonstration to the entire world pause. He loves to make a statement, Twiggy. I think that's super interesting. You know, it was only last year that he was talking about doing this, about having some of his um, ships powered by ammonia. And and here we are, you know, I mean, it's the end of 2023, but he's managed to do it. He's got about 100 vessels that he uses to transport iron ore. So that's quite significant in terms of a fleet. Um, and he's saying that he's going to have all of them powered by ammonia. Uh, it will last year, he was saying in under a decade, I think it's going to be even sooner than that, but he does need to get those regulations changed. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's people like Twiggy that we need to be making these big changes and statements. So I say good on him. And as we start to roll towards Christmas, the big supermarkets are being urged to ease prices for shoppers. Now, Minister for Agriculture Murray Watt has fired a warning shot at Coles and Woolies, urging them not to hike the prices of Christmas staples, specifically a leg of ham. Of course, this all comes after the Greens secured Labor's support to launch a Senate inquiry into Coles and Woolworths following accusations of price gouging. I'm going to be watching this Senate inquiry very, very closely. I mean, the supermarket giants have repeatedly denied overcharging customers, but you know, it's, um, it's interesting that they have been making very hefty profits during this cost of living crisis. And it, things like the price of meat, as you mentioned, Sasha, the, the cost of ham. And when livestock prices have been coming down, it's like, well, where's this money going? If it's not going straight to the farmers and the cattle producers, who's it going to? Mm, I just want to know is we, constantly hear about inquiries and, and, you know, probes. And is this inquiry actually going to have any teeth? The Greens are vowing that they're going to dismantle the chokehold the two grocery giants have on the Australian market, and that will in turn bring down grocery prices. I personally did my Sunday shop yesterday, and it was $267 for two people. And uh, compared to a year ago, we were paying about 180 So I I'm noticing it. I haven't changed anything I'm doing, but prices keep going up and so do their profits. Well, it is true, you know, looking at the, the latest round of um, CPI adjustments, that, that the cost of staples like eggs and ice cream and um, sugar and those kinds of things, they've all gone up by 20%. So you're right, Sasha, you're not doing anything differently, <laughs> but all of this stuff is just going up and up and up, which is really sad. And, you know, there's some research out by Finder as well that's found almost half of consumers are going to dip into their savings account to fund Christmas. And a lot of young people don't have have much of a savings buffer as it is. So yeah, pretty grim January on the cards and let's hope that the Reserve Bank doesn't move again in February. Fingers crossed. All right, Sasha, I might leave you there and we'll go straight to our briefing topic, which is this landmark refugee deal for Tuvalu. Now let's get into our briefing on Australia's landmark climate refugee deal with Tuvalu and what it means more broadly. Joining me is Dr Tamara Wood, who's a Senior Research Fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Tamara, thanks for joining us on the briefing. So Anthony Albanese has described this as the most significant agreement between Australia and a Pacific Island nation ever. What's it really all about? So... In a sense, that is correct, and and the agreement between Australia and Tuvalu 
is also significant as, you know, to our knowledge, the first agreement of its kind that has been framed specifically as a response or a solution to climate change. So there are other agreements between Pacific Island nations and larger countries in the region, like, you know, New Zealand and the US, that give preferential access to migration pathways. But this is a first for Australia that is particularly framed as a solution for people at the front lines of climate change. And what it does is gives at least some Tuvaluans another option um, for dealing with the adverse impacts of climate change. Um, I think what's important is that it's it's one of many options that Tuvaluans need in terms of dealing with climate change. It's certainly not the case that everyone living in, in Tuvalu wants to leave or wants to move to Australia. In fact, the vast majority of people want to stay at home. But of course, we know that the impacts of climate change are going to make that increasingly difficult and probably eventually impossible. And in that case, it really is important for countries like Australia to to provide options for people for the future. So under this particular deal, Australia has agreed to provide 280 places per year. Do we know yet much about the nuts and bolts of of this agreement? Like, for example, is there a threshold for climate change that each person applying for this climate refugee status has to meet? Also, can they just move wherever they want? No, we don't. And that is a really important question because issues like this or deals like this, um, you know, the extent to which they really help people often depends on um, the detail. You know, as we say, the devil is in the detail. And there have been existing um, arrangements allowing for people from Pacific Islands to travel to countries like Australia to work, for example. But, you know, people can only move on a temporary basis or if they can't bring their families with them, for example, then it's really not a very sustainable or human rights respecting solution. So the Australian Tuvalu Treaty is just that. It's a treaty which means that it's an agreement between two countries. It's yet to be implemented in the domestic law of either of those countries. And it won't be until that happens that we really know exactly what this is going to look like in practice. And that goes for how Australia will manage it and you know, those questions you've been asking, how they will be um, answered. But it's also important to think about how Tuvalu will implement this in its own domestic laws as well. And, you know, in recent weeks, it's been quite hotly debated in the Tuvaluan parliament as to whether this really is in the best interests of Tuvaluans, you know, whether all of the aspects of the agreement should be in there, how will people be selected and those sorts of things. Um, So, no, we don't have those details and they will be important. Now, what we do know about this agreement is that it comes with an important caveat, which is that Tuvalu has to agree not to enter defence pacts with other nations without Australia's approval. Can you give us some context around that and why that was factored in? Sure. So, I mean, I'm not a security expert, but I do know that these sorts of provisions are not uncommon in the Pacific and indeed elsewhere in the world whereby, you know, smaller states rely on larger states to assist with security and to support them. And certainly there are other, some of those other, you know, preferential migration pathways that other Pacific Islanders have with countries like New Zealand and the US, many of them have similar provisions in them. 
I suppose, though, from a climate justice point of view, countries like Australia really have an obligation to support smaller countries and countries at the front line of climate change, irrespective of the benefits they get in return. So Australia, I guess, through this will provide Tuvalu with a security guarantee, which will allow Canberra to veto any attempts by other countries to strike a security agreement with Tuvalu. And and what most people are sort of reading between the lines there is that that caveat will prevent a situation similar to the Solomon Islands Pact with Beijing. Is that right? I suppose in in practice, that is right. My understanding of the sort of geopolitics of of security is fairly limited. I mean, that's not my area, but my understanding is that, you know, that kind of pact between Tuvalu and China is not that likely anyway. It's quite a different context in Tuvalu. But the fact still remains that the provision gives Australia an effective veto over future agreements of that kind, yes. How do you think this will shape conversations at COP28? Yeah, so it's very interesting timing that this has been concluded in the lead up to COP28. And I think certainly human mobility has been an increasing feature of discussions around climate change everywhere. But I think also more broadly, the priority at COP is mitigation of greenhouse gases and the impacts of climate change to begin with. And it's our view that that actually is a critical aspect of addressing human mobility as well. As I said before, most people affected by climate change do not want to move. They want to stay in their homes. So while providing options like migration to Australia is a positive step in giving people choice, it's not necessarily the priority and it's certainly not a standalone solution. Governments should support people to stay safely at home. And that that is where discussions at COP really are critical. I'd love to talk a little bit about the the wider ramifications for other nations affected by climate change. I'll begin in the Pacific. What do you think it means for residents of other Pacific nations like, for example, Fiji or PNG? Sure. Well, of course, Tuvalu is not the only country that might need options like this in the future. And I think it would be a positive thing if the, the recent agreement provides an example that can be used by other countries who are really at the front line of climate change to think about, you know, is this the kind of solution that we would want, you know, would our people want to move to Australia, to New Zealand, to the larger countries in the region? But I think it's it's quite a region-specific solution as well. The impacts of climate change are quite different around the world and also the the political landscape is quite different as well. So this is an agreement that suits the Pacific and, you know, the relations between countries there and the, and the different countries there. But in other regions, what's needed might be quite different. So in Latin America and Africa, for example, where there are already moves towards regional or continental free movement of persons, that might be more where you see efforts being taken to make arrangements like that more accessible to people who are moving in the context of climate change or regions where it's common to have, you know, more discretionary humanitarian visas or um, other arrangements like that, they might become the kind of frameworks that are used to help people moving because of climate change. So I think we're likely to see solutions that really reflect what already exists. Like I said, this agreement is not dissimilar to other agreements in the region, even though it's the first framed in terms of climate change. 
So I think that's what we're likely to see more of is existing arrangements for migration that are sort of advanced a bit or modified a bit or expanded a bit to take account of the fact that it is likely that more and more people will have to move because of climate change. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, Tuvalu, the, the population there is quite small. But then when you're looking at other countries grappling with climate-induced crises like um, Pakistan, other African nations, there are, are a significant number of residents living there. Absolutely. And many of those people are already moving as a result of climate change. You know, in Africa, for example, where there's a high amount of pastoralism and, you know, nomadic um, herding and so on. I mean, people have been moving for a very long time, you know, for centuries looking for food and water for their herds and so on. But what we see is that as the impacts of climate change are increasingly felt, that movement changes. So people move to different areas or they move further or their movement is less predictable. You know, they used to always take the same route and now they're having to change it all the time. But not all those people need the kind of migration pathway that that Tuvaluans might need. You know, it may just be that they need a bit more flexibility in terms of being able to move around border areas, for example. So loosening up some of those restrictions to allow people to move back and forward more easily might be a more appropriate solution there. Whereas then in countries like Malawi, which have experienced very sudden onset and severe um, cyclones and storms, there you do need a response that can take care of you know, very large numbers of people in a short period of time, but then may also be temporary. You know, many people will need sort of temporary shelter and may be able to return. And then, of course, in some cases, there will be communities that are in areas that you know, because of the impacts of increasing disasters or because of sea level rise will become uninhabitable. And that's where we look at something called planned relocation. And that's, you know, in a sense, that's really a measure of last resort, you know, to relocate an entire community from one place to another is a very difficult thing to do successfully. But of course, it's going to be necessary in some cases. But it's really important to look at how exactly is climate change impacting this particular community and what do they need because that will be different in different places. And that was Dr Tamara Wood who's a Senior Research Fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law and as she mentioned uh, this is likely going to shape a lot of conversations at COP28. It's something that a lot of different nations around the world are grappling with at the moment so you can expect to hear a huge amount more of news in this space. Listener.